Book Three, Chapter Nine of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book Three, Hermit and Heretic, eighteen sixty to eighteen seventy. Chapter Nine, The Queen of the Air, eighteen sixty nine. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. In spite of a classical education and the influence of Aristotle upon the immature art theories of his earlier works, Ruskin was known in his younger days as a Goth and the enemy of the Greeks. When he began life, his sense of justice made him take the side of modern painters against classical tradition. Later on, when considering the great questions of education and the aims of life, he entirely set aside the common routine of Greek and Latin grammar as the all-in-all -all of culture. But this was not because he shared Carlyle's contempt for classical studies. In Modern Painters, Volume 3, he had followed out the indications of nature worship and tried to analyse in general terms the attitude of the Greek spirit towards landscape scenery, as betrayed in Homer and Aristophanes and the poets usually read. Since that time, his interest in Greek literature had been gradually increasing. He had made efforts to improve his knowledge of the language, and he had spent many days in sketching and studying the terracottas and vases and coins at the British Museum. He had also taken up some study of Egyptology, through Champollion, Bunsen and Birch, in the hope of tracing the origin of Greek decorative art. Comparative mythology at that time was a department of philology, introduced to the English public chiefly by Max Merler. Under his influence, Ruskin entered step by step upon an inquiry which afterwards became of singular importance in his life and thought. In 1865, he had told his hearers at Bradford that Greek religion was not, as commonly supposed, the worship of beauty, but of wisdom and power. They did not, in their great age, worship Venus, but Apollo and Athena, and he regarded their mythology as a sincere tradition, effective in forming a high moral type and a great school of art. In the Ethics of the Dust, he had explained the myth of Athena as parallel to that of Neith in Egypt, and in his fable of Neith and St. Barbara, he had hinted at a comparison on equal terms of ancient and medieval mythology. He ended by saying that, though he would not have his young hearers believe that the Greeks were better than we, and that their gods were real angels, yet their art and morals were in some respects greater, and their beliefs were worth respectful and sympathetic study. The Queen of the Air is his contribution to this study. On March the ninth, 1869, his lecture at University College London on Greek myths of cloud and storm began with an attempt to explain in popular terms how a myth differs from mere fiction on the one hand, and from allegory on the other, being not conceived didactically but didactic in its essence, as all good art is. He showed that Greek poetry dealt with a series of nature myths, with which were interwoven ethical suggestions, that these were connected with Egyptian beliefs, but that the full force of them was only developed in the central period of Greek history, and their interpretation was to be read in a sympathetic analysis of the spirit of men like Pindar and Aeschylus. The great question, he said, in reading a story is, always, not what Wild Hunter dreamed, or what childish race first read it, 
but what wise man first perfectly told and what strong people first perfectly lived by it and the real meaning of any myth is that which it has at the noblest age of the nation among whom it was current in the next chapter he worked out as a sequel to his lecture two groups of animal myths those connected with birds and especially the dove as a type of spirit and those connected with the serpent in its various significances these two studies were continued more or less in love's many and in the lecture printed in ducalion as the third group that of plant myths was carried on in proserpina the volume contained also extracts from the lecture on the architecture of the valley of the somme and two numbers of the cestus of aglaea and closed with a paper on the Heracles of Camarina, read to the South Lambeth Art School on March the 15th. This study of a Greek coin had already formed the subject of an address at the Working Men's College, and anticipated the second course of Oxford lectures. For the rest, the Queen of the Air is marked by its statement, more clearly than before in Ruskin's writing, of the dependence of moral upon physical life, and of physical upon moral science. He speaks with respect of the work of Darwin and Tyndall, but as formerly in the Reed Lecture and afterwards in the Eagle's Nest, he claims that natural science should not be pursued as an end in itself, paramount to all other conclusions and considerations, but as a department of study subordinate to ethics, with a view to utility and instruction. Before this book was quite ready for publication, and after a sale of some of his less treasured pictures at Christie's, he left home for a journey to Italy to revisit the subjects of stones of venice as in eighteen sixty eight he had revisited those of the seven lamps at vivet on the way he wrote his preface may the first by quiet stages he passed simplon writing from domo dosola fifth of may eighteen sixty nine i never yet had so beautiful a day for the simplon as this has been though the skin of my face is burning now all over to keep me well in mind of its sunshine I left Brieg at six exactly, light clouds breaking away into perfect calm of blue, heavy snow on the col about a league, with the wreaths in many places higher than the carriage. Then, white crocus all over the fields with soldanelle and primula farinosa. I walked about three miles up and seven down with great contentment, the waterfalls being all in rainbows, and one beyond anything I ever yet saw for it fell in a pillar of spray against shadow behind, and became rainbow altogether. I was just near enough to get the belt broad and the down part of the arch, and the whole fall became orange and violet against deep shade. Tomorrow I hope to get news of you all at Bavinel. Bavinel, Thursday the 6th of May, 1869. It is wet this morning and very dismal, for we are in a ghastly new inn, the old one being shut up and there is always a reaction after a strong excitement like the beauty of the Simplon yesterday, which leaves one very dull. But it is of no use growling or mewing. I hope to be at Milan tomorrow, at Verona for Sunday. I have been reading Dean Swift's Life and Gulliver's Travels again. Putting the delight in dirt, which is a mere disease, aside, Swift is very like me in most things, in opinions exactly the same. At Milan next day he went to see the St. Catherine of Luini, which he had copied, and found it wantonly damaged by the carelessness of masons who put their ladders up against it, just as if it were a bit of common whitewashed wall. On the 8th he reached Verona, after seventeen years' absence, and on the 10th he was in Venice. 
there looking at the works of the old painters with a fresh eye and with feelings and thoughts far different from those with which he had viewed them as a young man in eighteen forty five he saw beauties he had passed over before in the works of a painter till then little regarded by connoisseurs and entirely neglected by the public historians of art like crow and cavalcasel had indeed examined carpaccio's works and investigated his life along with the lives and works of many another obscure master artists like hook and burne jones had admired his pictures ruskin had mentioned his backgrounds twice or thrice in stones of venice but no writer had noticed his extraordinary interest as an exponent of the mythology of the middle ages as the illustrator of poetical folklore derived from those antique myths of greece and newly presented by the genius of christianity this was a discovery for which ruskin was now ripe he saw at once that he had found a treasure-house of things new and old he fell in love with st ursula as twenty-four years earlier he had fallen in love with the statue of ilaria at lucca and she became as time after time he revisited venice for her sake a personality a spiritual presence a living ideal exactly as the queen of the air might have been to the sincere athenian in the pagan age of faith the story of her life and death became an example the conception of her character as read in carpaccio's picture became a standard for his own life and action in many a time of distress and discouragement the thought of what would st ursula say led him not always but far more often than his correspondents knew to burn the letter of sharp retort upon stupidity and impertinence and to force the wearied brain and overstrong nerves into patience and a kindly answer and later on playful credence which he accorded to the myths deepened into a renewed sense of the possibility of spiritual realities when he learnt to look with those medieval believers once more as a little child upon the unfathomable mysteries of life but this anticipates the story at the time he found in carpaccio the man who had touched the full chord of his feelings and his thoughts just as in his boyhood turner had led him marvelling through the fire and cloud to the mountain altar and as in his youth tintoret had interpreted the storm and stress of a mind awakening to the terrible realities of the world it was no caprice of a changeful taste nor love of startling paradox that brought him to discover carpaccio it was the logical sequence of his studies and widening interests and a view of art embracing far broader issues than the connoisseurship of modern painters or the didacticism of seven lamps or the historical research of stones of venice soon after the queen of the air was published carlyle wrote last week i got your queen of the air and read it Uge edgar no such book have i met for so long years past the one soul now in the world who seems to feel as i do on the highest matters and speaks mere as dem herzen exactly what i wanted to hear as to the natural history of those old myths i remained here and there a little uncertain but as to the meanings you put into them never anywhere all these things i not only agree with but would use thor's hammer if i had it to enforce and put in action on this rotten world well done well done and pluck up a heart and continue again and again and don't say most great thoughts are dressed in shrouds many many are the phoebus apollo celestial arrows you still have to shoot into the foul pythons and poisonous abominable megatheriums and plesiosaurians that go staggering about largest cathedrals in our sunk epoch again
End of Book 3, Chapter 9 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith